As you saw on, on the bumper video behind me, we're continuing our series, God on Film. Um, so today, we are continuing through this Sermon on the Mount, allowing you know, real-life films um, or TV shows, in the case of today, uh, to speak into and illuminate some of the passages of the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we're going to talk about uh, desires. So if you're following along with us, you know we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Um, and so today, just so you all are clear, we're all on the same page, we are going to get a little bit PG-13 today. We are going to get some PG-13 today, so if you look at that passage and you realize what it is, we are going to do that. So it's, it's parents' discretion, I'm, I'm giving you a warning right now, um, with your elementary age kids, with your younger kids, um, that, that's your warning, that we're, we're going to go PG-13. So I'm glad they're in here if they're going to stay with us, especially some of those teenagers. So before we go any further, I'm, I'm going to pray, and, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, you are a, a good God who loves us, who, who cares deeply and passionately about us, God. Um, today, um, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your word. Um, allow us to, to hear you, allow it to speak into our hearts and, and minds. Allow it to transform us, God, and allow us to grow in new and deeper understanding. And it's in your son Jesus' name, amen. We all have desires. They're natural, they're real. Um, whether it's we get hungry, so we want something to eat. Whether it's we get thirsty, so we need something to drink. Whether it's, maybe it's in a, in a tense situation uh, and it's a little bit of conflict and we immediately respond or have the desire to, to fight, to get in there, or, or to flight. Well, today we're talking about another natural desire, one that's very real in our lives. And the desire is sexual impulse. The desire to achieve pleasure or intimacy through sexual expression and sexual relations. Everyone right now usually has an opinion upon sex, sexual identity, or sexual desires. How they work, how to control them, what to do with them, uh, where the line is, how far is too far, um, what's crossing the line, what's natural, and what's not. Whether it's a post on Facebook or an expert coming on to CNN, everyone seems to have something to say. What's interesting is as I look, just personally in my own life and, it, and kind of my own church experience and look over the last 50 or 60 years, I think the church has kind of had two natural or kind of just responses, I don't know if they're natural, two responses to this issue. The first I would say has been this, is put our fingers in our ear and pretend like it doesn't exist and let's not talk about it, let's not address it, let's pretend like it's not real and doesn't exist, so let's just be silent. The second um, response, I think, has been is, in, is from our pulpits, from our Bible studies, um, whether in small group settings, um, in our classes. We have sat in there and we've condemned the world. We've screamed and we've pointed fingers and we'd say, y'all going to hell. And we, we've just been saying, you know, that world out there is corrupt and it's all them. And we've, we've pointed fingers and we've screamed. My proposal today is that we need a conversation, not more condemnation. Our proposal today is that we're going to need a conversation and not more condemnation of the world. So my talk for today is as simple as this. It's as simple as this. Whether you're a Christian, 
whether you're not a Christian, wherever you're at in life, it can be boiled down to this. Lust kills love. That's my proposal today. Lust kills love. See, God's created us with natural desires. And in us, as he created us, he created us to desire. And he knows these desires. He gave them to us. And specifically, the desire of sex, sexual expression, the desire for intimacy, significance, commitment, satisfaction, and pleasure. And what's great about God is he's a good God. So he bundled this, all of this stuff, these desires, these expressions, this, this stuff, unto a beautiful thing called marriage. Unfortunately, because of sin, it's broken. And because of sin, we break marriage, and in turn, we break sex. Sin is selfishness. Sin stems from a disbelief that God is actually good. So when God gives us a beautiful thing such as marriage, a way to live by, a way to express ourselves sexually and experience pleasure and intimacy and significance, we think that God is actually withholding from us. We think he's withholding from us. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we tend to twist things. See, and I think Jesus, as the second Adam, knows this. And so he starts off at the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches. He begins to address the Beatitudes. He, he gives us a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God and what eternity is like. And then he gives us a purpose, salt and light. How do we achieve a vision that is like that and as beautiful as like that? And then what Jesus does is he kind of drop, throws a curveball, drops a bombshell in there, and he says, oh yeah, this Old Testament law, these first five books of the Bible with all these laws and these rules, yeah, they're not done away with. They're still good and they're valid. And yeah, you've got to keep all of them in order to get into heaven. Your righteousness must exceed that of the law to get into heaven. So he throws that curveball. And so what he's saying is your standing before God has to be perfect in order to get into heaven. So this is what he says, and I think this hinges the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, if you have your Bibles, Jesus drops this line, and he says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Last week, if you're here with us, and if you weren't, Jesus addressed our emotions, a very real part of who we are, our emotions, and specifically anger. And how real righteousness, righteousness that gets you into heaven, seeks out radical reconciliation. And this week, Jesus again speaks to our natural self, to an aspect of our nature, our desires and our natural urges. So he continues to the group of 12 disciples that are around him, and the crowds are coming, and he continues to teach. And he says this in verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her, throw in man to lust for him, has already committed adultery with them in their heart. So again, around Jesus are his disciples. 
probably good Jewish men who haven't slept around with anyone, who have been faithful to their wives, and who think righteousness is merely keeping the law. They don't take desire seriously. And I think if we were to poll this room, I don't think we would take desire seriously. We embrace it as normal to have desires and just blame it on how we're feeling or our natural selves. We play the blame game a little bit. Whether it's we're hungry, so let's gorge ourselves with food or the desire that we're talking today of lust. We delight in our desire. We love the taste of the mind candy. Mind candy makes us happy. And anything that keeps us from experiencing happiness is withholding from something good, or so we think. Especially when it comes to sexual desire. So Jesus starts out and he condemns lust. Lust is a natural desire that's out of control. And desire uncontrolled can cause unparalleled damage. So Jesus, knowing the law, starts out by quoting probably Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments are found. And knowing the Old Testament scriptures, he knows there's a lot of passages that speak into this way of life, how to deal with adultery. And adultery was punishable by death. So it was portrayed as very serious. And adultery, just so we're clear today, is sexual relations with someone other than someone's spouse. So any type of sexual act or relations with someone other than one's spouse. So that means before marriage or during with someone else. Sexual relations, Jesus says, begins in the eye or the mind's eye with anyone other than one's spouse. It causes the deterioration of biblical love. Lust kills love. So I think in order to understand how lust kills love, we've got to understand what love really is. So today I believe, and I think God puts it this way, that love is a choice. See, because see, when God showed his love, he did so by giving a covenant, specifically to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in this covenant that God lays out to Abraham of his love for Abraham and the establishing of the people and of the promise, God covenants to be with us, to be for us, unto full redemption. And that is until we are fully in the kingdom, Christ-like, holy and loving people. So when God gave this covenant to Abraham, he was saying, Abraham, I am for you. I am with you. I'm going to form you. I'm going to make you into the beautiful people that I'm promising to you. So therefore, when it comes to marriage, when we have a marriage covenant, our love for our spouse is to be with them, for them, and to the formation of making them holy and blameless and like Christ. So it's it's an establish of presence with them. It's an advocating for them. But it's also a formation of making them something so that they can stand righteous before God. This means that in marriage, there's a mutual purpose and indwelling. 
And it's this beautiful picture of love. And so Jesus says, lusting after someone other than your spouse is equal to adultery. So adultery is, as we've established, this biblical love, this covenant, is the the killing, the deterioration, the destruction of the marriage covenant, a holy union of man and woman. Just like how anger leads to murder, lust leads to adultery and sexual immorality. Lust kills love. Lust attacks our imagination, our perception, and twists it and causes us to mentally contemplate adultery. John Chrysostom says this, lust is the kindling of the furnace within you. So one thing I think of is, I think, of, I think fire is really cool. Let's see if I can get it to work. There we go. Fire is really cool. Um, I like fire. I like to burn things. Um, I know some of you are thinking up here, okay, sledgehammer last week, swinging it around, fire this week. S- something's bound to happen. I'll try not to catch anything on fire, um, burn anything up. But fire, and it's re- fire's really cool is because just a little spark and adding some fuel can turn into a flame. And as you add oxygen and as you add more fuel, turns into a bigger fire, and the fire consumes, it gobbles everything up quickly, and it just starts by a little bit of friction to cause that spark. I grew up on a farm um, in Ohio, and one of the things um, that we would do regularly is we would burn our fence rows. So we'd start a fire at one end, and to clear brush down our fence rows, to clear, to make sure the fence rows were visible, as we would burn our fence rows to clear away the brush. And so every time we do this, it would usually be my dad, my mom, uh, me and my two younger sisters, and we'd have hoses and buckets of water and start the fire and kind of guide it with the water and kind of let it go down the, go down the brush rows. Well, this one time, my mom thought she could do it by herself, and she was out there doing it. And next thing I know is I heard shouts, come quickly, come quickly. The fire has gotten out of control. So my sisters and I rush out and we got buckets of water and hoses and we're trying to put it out. But the fire had taken off into the field and had started consuming a lot of the hay. It started um, burning some of, some of the corn in the field next to us. And so it had started burning and so we're there trying to throw water on it. And the only way to put a fire out is to starve it to deprive it of fuel and of oxygen. And so we did it, and finally we, we got it out. We couldn't keep feeding it. And once we kind of looked at the survey, you see the big burnt patch down through the field, and you realized, well, whatever was burnt wasn't coming back. You weren't getting that back. One small spark of lust can quickly become the flame of adultery. And we have to starve out sin. We can't keep feeding it. We can't keep fueling it. Or it'll quickly consume. And Jesus says that this small spark of adultery is still a tiny fire. And the only fire that's really good is that desire and that fire that's in a marriage. And just from my, from my basic understanding of fire and how fire works, um, what I understand is that A fire within the right furnace 
can get way hotter than that of a field fire. And the only, only the covenant of a marriage can handle that heat. A fire outside of marriage burns everything to ash. And a fire in a furnace is used to refine. So when a fire quickly consumes and burn, whatever is burned, you're not getting that back. Ash doesn't become what it once was. We can't reverse that chemical reaction, which is why the covenant of a marriage is the right environment to fuel and to contain that fire and that desire in a relationship. Speaking of chemical reaction, of, of turning something that was live and, and destroying and turning it to ash, I think it's appropriate today if we talk a little bit of science because desires are natural, they're chemical, they happen within us. So we're going to talk a little, little science today. I don't know if you're a science person. I'm not really a science person. So um, a lot of this science stuff when it comes to desire and when it comes to, to, to dealing with sex and sexual pleasure it's, I've had to do a little research to know what goes on in the brain and in the head. So if you're curious, hey, where does this stuff come from? It comes from a website called fightthenewdrug.org. They deal um, with basically lust and pornography and, and how do you deal with that stuff. And they talk about three things specifically, um, how, how this kills what's going on in your brain, how it helps what's going on with your brain. Um, in the heart, in relationships, and also in the world, and how it destroys, um, how lust and pornography destroys these three areas. So here's the science I want to talk about today, and it goes simply as this. Sexual arousal can be the, explained as the neurochemical anticipation of sexual pleasures. As a result of various forms of contact, whether skin-to-skin, intercourse, or mental imaging. The brain then releases dopamine, which is basically the chemical's way of, that is going through your brain of saying, wow, this is pleasurable, this is good. It's like a spark that says, a, it sparks a feel-good reaction. And so what dopamine does is it creates tunnels or pathways through the brain, specifically of sexual pleasure. And it if you will, it just tells the person to do it again and again. And as these passages in your head are burrowed, as they're created, it makes it easier and easier for sexual expression, for sex to happen again and again. And it, soon, any sort of contact, any sort of imaging that happens creates the desire for more and more connection specifically with the same person or the same object. So dopamine does that. It goes pathways through the brain. It goes through that. But what's also is interesting is there's two other um, hormones or chemicals that are released into the brain when people undergo this. One is oxytocin and the other is vasopressin. And what's unique about these two chemicals in particular is they're releasing in the brain, so anytime there's sexual arousal, pleasure, intimacy, that what it does is it tells a woman that the man is hers and, that the, and tells the man that the woman is his. So there's ownership. And so anytime, whether it's mental imaging, experience, physical, 
Every time a human has any kind of sexual experience, that bonding takes place. So, the guilt or dirtiness after any kind of sexual experience outside of the confines of marriage is the body's way of saying, I'm confused. So, see, that's why Jesus condemns illicit sexual encounters, whether physical or fantasy, because God has wired us for sexual fidelity and for sexual commitment, specifically of love to one person. Hearts are wired to brains and brains are wired to commitment. And that's why pornography and erotica reading destroy love. The pathways are created so that the only joy and fulfillment that come are from more fantasy, from more porn, more shows, more encounters. And we lose the whole essence of what love and intimacy is really about. So as Christians, we're supposed to pursue purity outside of marriage. When we are single, out of our commitment to God, and when we're in marriage, we commit to our covenant. See, Jesus, again, to get into heaven, we have to have real righteousness. We have to have Jesus-type righteousness. And if you've ever struggled with lust, you realize it's hard to control. And really, we can't control it, that desire, all that well. So desires devour us the more we fan the flame. Why? Because we continue to look for satisfaction in broken things. And one thing's clear is Jesus teaches control of desire, not suppression of sexuality. Far too often in the church, when we have conversations like this, we're taught that, you know, sex is bad, sexual intimacy is not good, um, stay away from it, flee from it, when actually sex is a perfect and good gift from God designed for marriage. So don't suppress it. Wait. Control, desire, don't suppress sexuality. And we do this because we trust that God is a good God and that's the way that he designed it. The challenge today is that many modern thinkers would say it's okay for adultery to exist, it's okay for lust to exist outside of marriage if there is love. But see, I think our definition of love is all wrong. We confuse that natural desire for love. We confuse basic attraction for love. See, attraction is that instinct. That looking at another person and say, wow, they're pretty. Wow, he's handsome. They're, they're beautiful. They have value. But we're steeped in a society that lets emotions and desires run rampant. So this attraction, this bestowing of beauty, uh, of handsomeness, is viewed as love instead of lust. And we let our appetites run wild. Here to tell you, attraction is okay. Saying something is beautiful, is valuable, is okay. But oftentimes we mistake this attraction as a license to lust. We turn that basic natural attraction to intent, to a dwelling, to a picture, to a fantasy. 
one show I think um, does this in particular is, is Grey's Anatomy, our, our, our show for today. If you're unfamiliar with Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy is a, is a hospital set um, drama. It, it starts out with five interns, and eventually they become full-fledged doctors over the course of the 11 seasons. And so they adjust to their surroundings in Seattle Grace Hospital. And it starts off really in particular of season one, the first episode, is after kind of an after scenario of a one-night stand between two of the most famed characters. One doctor, soon-to-be doctor, Meredith Gray, and the other, Dr. Um, Derek McDreamy Shepherd. <laughs> McDreamy, yes, I, I did say McDreamy. Um, I, I do know, I, I have watched Grey's Anatomy. And so he works at this hospital. And from there, you know, the story goes on. They add in more characters. There's more plot lines. They save people. Um, they help people because it's a hospital. They have to do these amazing surgeries. Um, but also in the mix of all that is that romance, that passion um, between the doctors. And I would say, by far, Grey's Anatomy is actually a very moderate show, and we could have chosen much more explicit shows. Um, we could have chosen anything, probably in the past year that's come out, maybe you think of Fifty Shades of Grey, or the Magic Mike that just come out, maybe in previous years, Desperate Housewives, or maybe even one that's really popular is The Bachelor, Bachelorette. But there's always one thing that always catches me up about Grey's Anatomy, Um, as we watch it, I always find myself kind of rooting for adultery because of the passion and the romance. You see the people that work together, the chemistry, the the passion, and the heat of the moment trying to save someone's life. And as we go through the show, we end up rooting for the mental undressing. We root for more of that, that passion, that fantasy. And we find ourselves playing judge and saying, yeah, that, that person, they deserve that type of relationship with so-and-so for, because for whatever reason, their needs aren't being met by that person. And we advocate for their needs to be met. And we advocate for a license to lust based on the circumstance and the scenario but again, as I reflect on that, as I looked, look at that show and as I step back and kind of try to be a little more objective, adultery, passion, romance, and that way outside of marriage and lust, at its core is selfish. It's about personal wants and perceived needs, while true love is selfish, or selfless, I should say. Adultery and lust are selfish. True love is selfless. And we screw this up mainly because we won't funnel our desires towards our spouse or toward purity as we wait for commitment. We, we look at scenarios and TV shows and situations and contacts, contexts and we, and, we, and we root and we cheer and we funnel it our energy and our fantasy and our time towards these shows and these romance situations instead of towards our spouse. And the longer 
we go without saying no to this desire, to this cheering, this rooting, the more this thing called hypofrontality is created back to science. What basically hypofrontality is, is simply this. The lust-addicted brain has trouble thinking logically. When impulses and desires come in the brain, instead of being moderated and being able to say no, the brain feels these desires as compelling needs. Instead of being able to look at our situations and our context and our circumstances, our relationships, and judge the consequences, instead of being able to step back and say, whoa, that's unfunneled desire, that's wrong, that's not healthy, that's not the way God designed it, we keep plunging in. We keep going in to desires. And our ability to judge what's healthy, our ability to say no, becomes impaired. The more we let this go on in our lives, the more those tunnels are deepened, the more we desire fantasy, the more we desire that passion and that romance outside of marriage. Because we can't consciously and judiciously say no. And in effect, we basically become kind of a low form of human life and we have this with other people because we turn beauty and good things that God has given us, good relational things such as intimacy and significance and passion and desire into objects for use and we become enslaved by it. In turn, we become an animal who just has to run every time there's an opportunity to eat. The only way this is overcome is by becoming a new creation through Christ. We control our desires by giving up control. And that sounds weird, it sounds different, it's a little bit of a paradox. But God give, gave us our desires. So we should turn them over to the one who gave them to us in the first place. Because when we invite him into our relationships, into our marriages, our desires will then bring love and fulfillment. Because see, the supernatural trumps the natural. And so when we invite him into our relationships, he begins to transform us. And the supernatural transforms the natural. But when we allow ourselves to maintain control of our own life, and exercise our own judgment, and we think we can overcome, and we try harder, and we go and we try to control it. We rely on our definition of good. Because usually we think, well, just because I'm not sleeping around means I'm a pretty good person. If I have a relationship and I'm committed in love, well, that's good enough. But we're relying on our definition of love and commitment rather than God's. When we lust after another person, we slowly rip away our, away our eyes off of our spouse and we take them and we place them on someone else. Whether it's physical eyes or your mind's eyes through porn or reading. And love is slowly stripped and ripped away from that marriage and that marriage relationship or the potential if you're not married, 
if you're single or if you're in a dating relationship. Lust rips away that potential for love. Love is a choice to keep one's covenant. Love is a choice to stay pure until that covenant is established. And those desires, they erode. Lust is selfish. Love is selfless. And apart from Christ, we don't really get what real righteousness is. See, real righteousness keeps covenantal commitment. And Jesus kept his covenantal commitment to us by staying pure. And I got to ask, how did he do it? If Jesus was a man, which he was, and he lived on this earth, and he had these same desires, if these same natural urges were part of his makeup, how'd he overcome? Did he try harder? Did he say no? Or did he surrender? And I think Jesus gives us his answer in the text today. Verse 29, Jesus says this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus was tempted, but he did not nurture that temptation. He did not flirt with it. He didn't dally around with it. He didn't hang around, (coughs) excuse me, images that incited sexual arousal. He says we're to deal drastically with sin. We're to not pamper with it, flirt with it, enjoy it, nibble around it, say a little's okay, and no one will know. We're to hate it, crush it, dig it out. We're to cut off sin at the source. We're to put out the fire, the spark, that flame outside of our marriage covenant. We're to put it out. We're to cut off the oxygen and get rid of the fuel. So as we read that passage and we look at it and we say, well, pluck, gouge out an eye, cut off a hand. Is Jesus saying we're supposed to mutilate ourselves or supposed to really cut out our eye, cut off our hand? I would say no. But do we take sin that seriously? I would say some of us maybe need to contemplate that seriousness. Do we have something in our lives that is bonded to us that continue to drive us deeper and deeper into the sin? Because the question we got to ask that I think the seriousness of gouge out an eye, of cut off a hand brings, is do we care more about our covenant with God or our covenant with sin? Because see, you can't have a covenant with God and a covenant with sin. You can't have both. You either serve one of the two masters. It doesn't work that way. Because a covenant is a mutual indwelling. It's a choice of love and selflessness. So you're either selfless and given to sin, or you're selfless and turn to God. So as you observe and as you look at your life right now, where are you indulging in sin. 
as you look at your own life and as we talk about this very real thing, this natural desire, where are you indulging with and sin? See, it may be awkward the first time you have to tell your, your friends, yeah, I won't read that book because it makes me think of my husband less. Guys, we may have to say, I'm not going to order Sports Illustrated because I know once a year that swimsuit edition's going to come and I don't want to be tempted to look at it and think of my wife less. Fathers, it's okay to tell your daughters to put some clothes on. Fathers, it's okay to teach your, your sons and, your, and, and the young men how to treat women with respect, treat them as beautiful and as valuable creatures that they are created in God's image, not as objects for your pleasure. Parents, it's okay to put software on your kids' phones, sons and daughters, to know what technology is out there that can cause your kids to stumble, to give in, to not remain pure. Maybe that's an area in your own life that you've got to look at. Is there an app on my phone that I continually look at and I scan and I look at pictures and it causes me to think of my husband less, to think uh, of a fantasy, to daydream, to dream, to indulge with someone other than my spouse? Students, I'm, I'm just, we got some here in this room. Um, it's your parents' responsibility to make sure you stay pure until marriage. Parents, it's your job to help your kids stay pure until marriage. You're to disciple them in a covenant commitment. So students, what I'm going to suggest is that you don't Google things. You don't ask your friends. You don't look up stuff on the internet. You go talk to your parents about these desires and these urges and how to deal with them and how to handle with them. And parents, that means that you got to be prepared and means you got to be informed. you got to know what's going on and what's out there. And so parents, if you're, if as I say this, if you struggle with like, how do I do this? How do I advocate for purity and commitment? Because my past wasn't so great. Because my own commitment to my husband or to my wife hasn't been the best. Don't fear. Don't feel guilt or feel, sh feel shame. Don't lift yourself as a standard, up as a standard. Lift Jesus up as a standard. Because he's where real righteousness is exemplified. He is the one who shows us what real righteousness is all about and how it's selfless. And so let's journey on this together. Parents and, and kids, husbands and wives, maybe, maybe you're in a dating relationship Maybe, maybe you've been sexually immoral. Let's journey after Jesus together. Let's seek Him. Let's lift Him up as the standard. Primarily, because see, Jesus was righteous when we even desired evil. When we indulge in our lust, when we know that our heart is far from God, Jesus was still righteous. And he still desires to give us new desires. Because see, what's cool about our God, 
about Jesus is he's in the business of bringing dead things back to life. That ash that was burned, that's stripped away in our brains, that's eroded the potential that we think of real love and commitment, we have a God who is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. And he wants to do that in your life. He wants to heal you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to roll the stone away that you think has crushed and has buried you. He wants to give you new life. He wants to turn that burnt relationship back into what it once was. So this morning, here's what Jesus is saying to do. If you have a past or you even have a present right now where you engage in sexual immorality, where you're engaging in adultery. First and foremost, I want to say that Jesus wants to forgive you. He longs to forgive you. He wants you to stand beside him as forgiven and embrace it and feel that. But then he also says this. He says, starve out the sin. Get the sin out of your life. Don't continue to indulge in it. Because it will get you thrown into a fire that will ever be put out. So it means go put the software on your computer or on your phone. Maybe you need to cancel that subscription. Maybe you need to watch at what restaurants you go to eat so that you won't stare. Maybe you need to end a relationship. Maybe you simply need to get married. Starve out the sin. Because our God is in the business of healing things, making things new, he also says this. He says, build up your brain. Those pathways, those tunnels that are, that are burrowed in there, that lust-addicted brain, how do you heal that brain besides starving out the sin and letting God work? Simply this. You believe that God is good and stop looking for satisfaction and other places, and other people. Jesus was able to keep his covenant commitment because he had satisfaction and he had pleasure rooted in the intimacy of his Father and the Holy Spirit, of a beautiful, beautiful Trinitarian relationship. He didn't look elsewhere for that good grace and that good intimacy. So replace those deep channels with love. Replace those with love. So what that means is, husbands, maybe you need to man up and go take your wife out on a date and start pouring back into her. Wives, maybe you need to let your husband actually back in and start establishing that real relationship again. Maybe he's hurt you, but really start letting him back in and pledge commitment together. Rekindle that relationship. Fan that flame in the marriage relationship. Don't stifle it. That's where it needs to exist. Because see, lust kills love. And real love exists in covenant. And real righteousness keeps covenantal commitment.